Thank you, Ed, and thank you, Jeannie, for reading earlier. The story of A.C. Green, a former NBA player, is a fascinating story. Um, he describes being um, at a high school in Portland, Oregon. He, was, uh, he described himself as being a sports-minded, egotistical maniac. <laughs> he says, I was the tallest guy on the team, could have broken all the scoring records for the school, but, he says, Coach Gray wouldn't let me. He says his coach made him pass the ball to his teammates. Even with the breaks on twice that year, he scored 39 points in one uh, game. He scored 40 points, even passing the ball around. He averaged 27 points per game. As a team, they scored more than 100 points in seven games and averaged 90 points per game. If you don't know anything about basketball, that's pretty good. Green was voted Oregonian's 1981 All-Metro Area Player of the Year. Now, why wouldn't his coach just let him be a hot shot? He said that his coach was more concerned that he learned to be a team player. He said this, in basketball and in life, everyone starts out with a what's-in-it-for-me attitude. That natural selfishness has to be broken to be a winner, Green says. You have to realize you can't do it all by yourself. You see, that's how it is in life, too. Now, Green went on to play in the NBA. He earned the distinction for more consecutive games than any other player in the NBA. But what we learn from his story is that pride is dangerous. He knew that if, the coach knew that if pride creeped in, it would destroy Green. Now, in our story today, we are continuing the, the story of David. We have this week and then one more week, and then we'll be done with that story. Uh, but we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 24, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. I'm going to ask you to do something a little different today. So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 24, and then hold your finger there, and then find 1 Chronicles chapter 21, um, and hold your finger there. And go, we're going to go back and forth. And you might say, why are we looking at both passages? Well, 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles chapter 21 are telling the same story, but they have different information in each one. Now David, in this story, is toward the end of his life. Uh, before we read this text, let me set up the story. David is an accomplished king. He's expanded his kingdom from 6,000 square miles to over 60,000 square miles. His army has been extremely successful. He has much to celebrate. And when we come to this story, David is feeling pretty good about himself. He decides that he wants to know the details of his success. Now, in the NIV version of 1 Samuel chapter 24 in verse 1, we, ring, we reread, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. And that's an interesting sentence, isn't it there? The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and, and God somehow incites David to, to do evil. And we might say, well, God doesn't incite us to do evil, do, does he? Uh, we look over in the First Chronicles chapter 21 passage in verse 1. That says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. And so we could get into this whole theological discussion, how God allows sometimes Satan to tempt us. I think the best way to understand this is that God is allowing David to be tempted in this particular way. And what's he tempted to do? He's tempted to count, to take a census. Now most of us are going, what's the big deal about that? What's the problem? Let's keep reading. 
David goes to his general, Joab, and this is verse 2 of 2 Samuel 24, and it says, So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many are there. Again, you might be thinking, Seems reasonable to me, right? He just wants to count. He just wants to know how many are there. But verse 3 gives us a clue as to the fact that this is a problem. But Joab, this is his army commander, or general, replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why, why does my lord the king want to do such a thing. We get a clue that this is not a good idea. And Joab tactfully tells David, I don't think this is a good idea, David. You see, by counting the men, David was showing a lack of trust in God. He was becoming prideful in all that he had accomplished. How do we know this? Look at, look at verse, uh, t- verse 3 again, back over to First Chronicles 21. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply the troops a hundred times over. My Lord the king, are they not all my, Lord, all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring, look what it says, guilt on Israel? You see, there's a problem with taking a census. If you go to Exodus chapter 30, you can read that God tells the Israelites, don't take a census. If you do, there will be guilt on you. And so it's against what God wants for them. And Joab knows this, and David knows this, but David's going to do it anyway. Now, it might seem crazy to think that God would not want him counting the people. But again, the only reason that David count, is counting is because he wants to know what he has accomplished. Now, in our culture today, we are a culture of data, aren't we? We're a culture of numbers. We like to know all of the information. And it's kind of hard for us to process why it would be so wrong. But again, God is less interested in numbers. And God had commanded them not to take a census because he wanted them to trust in him. And it's clear that David... Um, again, is not going to be dissuaded by his general Joab. Look at verse 4. The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. And so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. David doesn't listen to those around him. He doesn't listen to God. They're telling him, David, this is wrong. God doesn't want you to do it. But David pulls rank and he says, do it anyway. Verses 5 through 7 describe the census. They go throughout the entire land. And then in verse 8, after they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. It took them almost 10 months to conduct the census. And overall, there are 1.1 million people in the kingdom. Notice also in 1 Chronicles that Joab is not too happy about doing the work. Look at 1 Chronicles 21, verse 6. The king's command was repulsive. To him, Not only was the command offensive to Joab, but we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 7, this command was also evil in the sight of God. No doubt, David is doing what he's not supposed to be doing. And after the counting is over, David has a change of heart. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. 
Now, we know the story of David. If you've been hearing the story of David, David's had more than one occasion where he's made a mistake, hasn't he? He's had more than one occasion where he's let God down. And this time, he's not trying to hide from God. He goes to God, and he says to God, look, I've sinned. I know that I shouldn't have done what I did. What's God going to do? How is God going to respond? Now, the way that God handles this is certainly unconventional. In fact, one scholar comments that this is the only time in all of Scripture where God gives someone a choice of consequences. Look at verse 24, chapter 24, verse 11, 2 Samuel. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Now, we could get into a discussion of sin here and how sin must have, an, have atonement. But the short of it is that God is holy. And because of this, God can't simply say, oh, no problem, David, I'll let it slide this time. It just doesn't work like that. We know that in time, God himself will wrap himself in, wrap himself in flesh and come and pay the price for our sins. But David's sin could not go without consequence. But in his grace, God gives David options. Look at the First Chronicles passage. It gives a little more detail here, verse 11. So Gad went to David and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. It's fascinating, isn't it? And again, in our modern culture, we often have trouble thinking, well, why would God punish David for a census? Why would God punish David for disobedience? I was talking with someone about it this week, and that person said, you know, we always get upset when God, um, God has a consequence for evil in the world, right? Or God doesn't. We say, why does God let evil go? And then we do evil and we say, why does God have to punish us, right? It kind of goes both ways. But again, God is holy. God is just. And so there has to be a consequence. Which one would you want? Three years of famine? Three months of being swept away by your enemies? Or three days of the sword of the Lord? What does that even mean, right? Now, the first two seem pretty clear. But if you search this phrase, angel of the Lord, and you really try to figure out what, what is he talking about here, you'll find that sometimes the angel of the Lord comes in peace, but other times the angel of the Lord shows up in Scripture in fury. We read in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, the angel of the Lord comes onto the Assyrian camp and puts to death 185,000 people in one night. I mean, that's pretty vicious, isn't it? I don't know which one I would choose. But look at David's response. This is 2 Samuel 24, 14. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. No doubt, right? Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not, do not let me fall into human hands. That's a fascinating verse, isn't it? I mean, David understands there's going to be consequences for sin. But David says, I'll place myself in God's, in God's hands any day. You know, this, the enemy's attacking or famine, that, that's pretty bad. 
And certainly the angel of the Lord is a pretty scary thing, but I'd rather be in God's hands than anywhere else, David says. And maybe, just maybe, God will show mercy. You see, David understands what it means to be in sin and to come to God and for God to forgive him. He understands what mercy looks like. And he understands also that God is holy, and there's some scariness in that, but David says, put me in God's hands. He chooses the third option. David is stressed out to say the least. I cannot imagine the anguish that he was feeling the whole time knowing that, you know what, if I were to just listen to Joab, I wouldn't be in this mess right now. If I had just paid attention to God's commands, I would not be in this mess. But again, he did not. He has to face the ramifications of his behavior. Look at verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people... From Dan, from Dan to Beersheba, died. For three days, God's wrath is poured out on the nation. Now, you might be thinking, well, this isn't fair. David was the one who made the mistake, who sinned. Why are all these people dying? And this is how sin works sometimes. Think of the story of David and Bathsheba. David's child dies as a result of his sin. Bathsheba loses her husband as a result of David's sin. It's just not fair. And here, 70,000 people die as a result of David's sin. It is tragic, to say the least. You know, we often picture God, or some people picture God, as angry, vindictive, enjoying punishing people, imagining him with a sinister laugh, throwing plagues and lightning bolts around. But that's really not how God responds. That's not the God that we know. Look at what Scripture says of him in verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand! And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. You see, it's just a matter of justice, not revenge. And the whole time God is grieved. I imagine a God with tears flowing down his cheek. And finally he's had enough and he tells the angel to stop. Let's keep reading together. David is distraught. He shares our sentiment. This is not fair. Verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. But these are, these are but sheep. What have they done? Let, let your hand fall on me and my family. David says, I'll pay the price. I think it's incredibly, uh, this, 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 this verse is powerful, isn't it? Especially if we think of David's family and Jesus coming as the son of David, who will pay the price for our sins. But David says, let the punishment fall on me. Please stop, God. I love this description in 1 Chronicles. This is verse 16, chapter 21. David looked up, saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. You see why I like to look at the, the Chronicles passage along with the first Samuel passage because we get different details here. For, for just a moment, God gives David spiritual eyes to see this angel. It must have been a terrifying sight. David falls down prostrate before God when he sees this angel. God then speaks to David through the seer Gad. Now don't forget, where's the angel of the Lord? Where'd he stop? He's at the threshing floor. We read in verse 
18 of 2 Samuel 24. On that day, Gad went, up, went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Now, no doubt David is paying attention now. And, and is, again, we don't have to understand all the dynamics here, but, but, this, but God is holding this angel back, right? The God's justice would completely destroy. But God says enough, and he holds him back. And then he tells David, I want you to go and sacrifice. I want you to make things right. Verse 19, so David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. I, I love the next part of the story. I, I find this whole encounter fascinating. The guy who owns the threshing floor sees David coming. When Aruna looked up, this is verse 20 of 2 Samuel 24, when Aruna looked up and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Now, if this guy really knew what David had done and knew why David was there, he probably wouldn't be bowing down at him. He'd be, he'd be wanting to punch, punch him in the face, right? But he doesn't because he thinks that David is coming to do a good thing. But David is responsible for the death of 70,000 men. David explains why he's here in verse 21. Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant to buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Again, Aruna thinks David's a hero, and he's willing to give David the threshing floor so he can make the sacrifice. Let me pitch in, Aruna says. Aruna said to David, verse 22, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. Here are, here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But David knows he's no hero. He knows he's responsible. He knows he's the one who needs to sacrifice. And so in verse 24 it says, But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord. My God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David has learned what it means to follow God. And David has learned what it means to authentically worship God. And he knows that true worship involves sacrifice, giving of oneself to God. And so David insists, look, I'm going to pay for the land. He gives him a fair price. He builds an altar. And in the last verse, verse 25, David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the lamb and the plague on Israel was stopped. God's grace is extended to David and to his people. In the midst of David's punishment, and you can't miss this. Again, uh, it's hard for us to look at this, and a lot of times we look at this and we say, you know, boy, that's really, God, God's really mean, isn't he? Uh, his, his justice really does, wreaks a lot of havoc, and we start questioning that. But what we, can't, what we need to see in this is that God is in the midst of it. God is offering a way for David to receive forgiveness, grace. God holds back destruction. Again, in 1 Chronicles, we get a little more insight here. Look at how it's described. This is 1 Chronicles 21, uh, 27. Then the Lord spoke to the angel, and he put his sword back into his sheath. Wow, what a story, right? On the one hand, you might be thinking, well, David certainly has a hard time learning what it means to follow God. But at the same time, most of us are aware that we too are a lot like David. A lot of times we fail God over and over again. 
Too often we get caught up in our own deal. We fail to listen to God. And as we close this story, I think that there are applications for us today. Uh, First of all, we need to understand that David was living in a place of pride with no accountability. And as you and I look at this story, we need to be reminded that, that we need accountability in our lives. David could have simply listened to his friends, to Joab, and avoided the whole tragedy. But he didn't. David was walking around with his nose up in his air, up in the air. David was looking around and saying, look what wonderful things I have done. He was taking all the credit to himself. He was living in a place of pride. And he pulled rank and he drove ahead with his own plans. He failed to listen to his friends. And he failed to listen to God. You know, we have to think about, maybe we're in a place like that sometimes. We're in a place, a position of pride, and if we are, we're heading for danger. Maybe this morning, God has gifted you in some way. Maybe you have talents. Maybe you have resources. It's easy to take pride in our accomplishments. But we must remember that we only have what we have because God has given it to us. And our job is to remain humble before God. To remain open-eared before God, listening to God, saying, God, what do you want me to do? And not take pride in what we have. As we read earlier in James chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives us more grace, it says. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but, but shows favor to the humble. Pride is dangerous. David learned this lesson firsthand. Secondly, I think we have to see in this story That sin always produces consequences. And we're reminded of God's posture toward sin in this story. Again, God's holiness, God's justice demands consequence. God can't just say, no big deal. He wouldn't be God if he did that. But envision with me a God with tears falling down his face as the angel of the Lord does his work. In time, God would do more than just call back the angel In time, God would step into our world and take on the sins of our world. You see, on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins. He, like David, said, let the punishment fall on me. Have you experienced God's forgiveness and grace through the shed blood of Jesus? If you haven't, let me encourage you to open yourself today to receive God's grace. God is not a vindictive God who's just looking for another way to punish you. God is God who loves you so much that he came to give himself on the cross for you. How might God be speaking to us today? Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful this morning for your love and your mercy and your grace. And even in the midst of this tragic story, God, we know that you love us. We know that you care for us. We know that because of your holiness, God, you came and gave yourself for us so that we did not have to endure the consequence of our own sin. But we know that you paid that price for us. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.